Good evening, everyone. Good evening. It's so nice it's starting to be light at this hour. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Green Room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco this Wednesday evening, February 17th, 2010. These Points of View programs, our Meet the Artist interviews, and other educational programming is produced by the Center for Dance Education, which is directed by Charles Chip McNeil, and our adult education is administrated by adult education coordinator, Cecilia Beam. And we're always grateful for all of the support we get from the ballet. Um, as you no doubt know, these programs are recorded for future podcasting. And you can find those podcasts on the ballet's website, sfballet.org. And you never know how interesting they might be, so I urge you to give that a try. This evening we're talking about program three, which is San Francisco Ballet's tribute this season to the Balanchine masterpieces. And I hope you enjoy this wonderfully dramatic picture of the young George Balanchine. Most of us are pretty familiar with the high points of the Balanchine biography. He came from the Imperial Russian Ballet. He joined the Diaghilev Ballet Russe in Paris. He emigrated to America and ultimately created the New York City Ballet. Along the way, he mentored Lou Christensen, San Francisco Ballet's longest-running artistic director. And our current director, Heldy Thomason, danced in the New York City Ballet for 15 years and is blessed by having had works created on him by George Balanchine. <clears throat> Here are a few details that are beyond the highlights that I would like to have you have in your mind. Balanchine's career spanned over 60 years. He created 465 cataloged works. This breaks down roughly to 170 ballets, 25 musicals and movies, 59 operas, and a dance for elephants. He molded our perception of the ideal ballet dancer. He's responsible for the genre of plotless or pure dance ballets that we now accept as standard form. His influence extends through two generations of dancers who are now the teachers and the choreographers and the directors of a large number of the world's ballet companies. And most significantly, his ballets are in the standard repertoire of well over 150 companies around the world today. He was born in St. Petersburg to a family of musicians. At age nine, he entered the Imperial Russian Ballet School and studied with the great dancers of the Petipa era, including Pavel Gert, who was his mime and acting teacher. Gert was our first Prince Siegfried, our first Prince Desiree, our first Sugar Plum Cavalier. He survived World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution and graduated from the school into the company in 1921. Then, while performing as a member of the company, he pursued three years of studies at the Conservatory of Music and was considered to have the potential of a professional pianist. He arranged his first dance at the age of 17 for students at the ballet school. The performers loved it. The teachers did not. It was too unusual. In 1923, at the age of 19, he presented a program called Evenings of the Young Ballet, again acclaimed by the young performers and the youthful audience, but not by the directorate of the theater. And in 1924, he and a few friends headed for Western Europe, and they sought out the Diaghilev Ballet Russe. There's much more to that story, but at age 21, Balanchine became the final major ballet master, a term that was used at the time instead of choreographer. 
Ballet Master of the Diaghilev Ballet Russe. When the company, uh, and during that time, he created any number of operas and he choreographed 10 ballets, of which two survive, Prodigal Son and Apollo. When the company disbanded, following the death of Diaghilev in 1929, Balanchine spent the next four years as an itinerant dancer and choreographer, ending up at a series of performances in Paris and was introduced to Lincoln Kirstein, a wealthy American intellectual and arts patron who invited him to come to the United States to form an American ballet. And he said famously, but first a school. And the School of American Ballet opened January 2nd, 1934 in New York City. The group of dancers who evolved into the New York City Ballet Company grew out of that school, and they included the younger Christensen brothers, Harold and Lou. The first iteration of Balanchine's company was called the American Ballet, and for a couple of years, they functioned as the resident company of the Metropolitan Opera. To make ends meet, he choreographed for Broadway musicals and in Hollywood. He also created a polka for the elephants of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And that's a story I hope we'll hear a little bit more about later. Almost 15 years after he arrived in America, he and Lincoln Kirstein gathered their dancers together again and formed a company that in 1948 was invited to become resident at the New York City Center for the Performing Arts. And they were named the New York City Ballet. There he remained as ballet master. Again, he never called himself the artistic director until his death in 1983. Balanchine never considered himself a genius or a creator. He would say, only God can create. He thought of himself as a craftsman who just made dances. Not everyone agreed with that modest opinion. The late Martha Graham, who actually collaborated with Balanchine on a work in 1959, said, <coughs> excuse me, it's like watching light pass through a prism. The music passes through him, and in the same natural yet marvelous way that a prism refracts light, he refracts the music into dance. Jack Anderson, a dance scholar, writer, says in the text on ballet, only what can be revealed through movement interests Balanchine, and he has removed from many ballets not only plot, but even elaborate costumes and scenery, so that nothing will distract attention from the movement itself. Re relatively few of his prolific output are story or narrative ballets, although the abstract or plotless ballet had existed in isolated examples before it was he who made it a genre unto itself. The name, which is used to describe the Valanchine aesthetic, is neoclassicism. We'll unpack that briefly. Valanchine had thorough respect for his training and heritage. When he joined up with the Diaghilev Ballet Russe, they were deep in a period of modernism that sometimes featured style over substance and shock tactics over lasting artistry. So starting with Apollo, which was 1928, he disregarded this modernist strain and went back to the classical school of dancing, <clears throat> the graceful, noble carriage of the torso and turnout of the legs and feet and arms rounded in perfect circles and feet pointed and high jumps and high leg extensions. But there was a difference. Although his dancers turned out their legs, they also turned them in. Although they rose on point, they also shuffled about on their heels. Although they rounded their arms, they also straightened them, splayed their fingers. Although they held themselves gracefully erect, they also jutted out their hips and caved their torsos inward. Although they danced beautifully to the music, they also danced against it, that is, in syncopation with it in rhythmically complex counterpoint. Many of the steps he devised for them were but distant cousins of those found in any ballet textbook. In short, Balanchine was creating a new language of dance based on but pre presupposing the old and traditional school. 
that said, I would like to take a quick look at the three works that are on Program 3. I'm assuming that many of you will be attending that performance this evening. I hope some of you may have already seen these ballets. We start with Serenade. Fittingly, it was Serenade that was Balanchine's first... Oh, we're not doing the movie here yet. That's later. Thank you. <laughs> Hint, we have video. Um, Balanchine created this work for his students right off the bat at the School of American Ballet his first few months here in 1934. And the stories about it are famous. I hope you'll read your program notes because it describes it pretty pretty completely. But um, suffice it to say, he created this work in order to teach those students how to dance, not how to do steps. And the work has evolved over these many, many years. He started with a truncated version of the score, and as the years went by, expanded until ultimately he used all of the score, which is what you will see when you see the piece. This is Sophia and Silva, one of the female lead roles. On the left is Sarah Van Patten in one of the other lead roles. This ballet has been described as a study in enduring loveliness. And I don't think anyone would disagree. Tiet Helmets with Sarah Van Patten. Brett Bauer, corps de ballet dancer who is rising up. We're beginning to see more of him with the three principal women, in this case, Sofiane, Sarah, and on the right, Lorena Fejo. And the iconic final moments. This is an example of Balanchine creating movement to music, but not being able to resist pulling in emotional threads and things that will evoke a response in you that are not absolutely plotless. Next on the program, Stravinsky Violin Concerto. This was created for the amazing and wonderful Stravinsky Festival in 1972. Here's a picture of Balanchine with Stravinsky. They collaborated apparently on, one source has 26 works, <clears throat> and that's open to interpretation. I believe it's possible that he created 26 works to the music of Stravinsky, but many times they worked together. This, um, another interesting thing about this piece is that he had created a ballet to this score in 1941, and when the Stravinsky Festival came along to celebrate the life and work of Stravinsky just following his death, that work had been lost. And so he took the music and just started over and created a, a classic. It's a work in four movements, an opening ensemble, two pas de deux, and a closing ensemble. Here we have um, Pierre-François and Sofiane in the first aria. The, move, the central movements are called arias. Um, again, Pierre-François and Sofiane. Yuanyan Tan dancing with Anthony Spaulding, another rising soloist. And a moment from the ensemble. And another good example of how he took the classic arm positions, feet positions, and broke the rules. And then the program closes with theme and variations. The second work on the program to the music of Tchaikovsky. I don't have the number at the tip of my tongue, but he, Balanchine created the number of works, second only to Stravinsky, to the works of Tchaikovsky. And this work is his tribute to his Imperial Russian roots. This work was created, actually, for American Ballet Theater in 1947. 
here we have Vanessa Zaharian with David Karpetian as the ballerina and her cavalier. I wasn't able to find my original source, but I know I read somewhere that he was asked to create this work for American Ballet Theater because they were tired of doing the third act of Sleeping Beauty. And they needed some, Lucia Chase, their director, needed an alternate piece. And Balanchine was handy, and she asked him, and he agreed to do something that would alternate with Sleeping Beauty. And so he chose Tchaikovsky's music and created this amazing, formal, classical, imperial tribute, references to his background. But as soon as you see it, you know that it's the modern Balanchine. And that does it for the slides. Do I have to go one more? No, oops. There we go. Do I just keep pushing buttons? Okay, I can just leave that. No matter, I'm hopeless. They keep coaching me and I keep forgetting. Um, I have said um, relatively little about the music element of Balanchine's genius because it was huge, it was overriding, and because we have guests this evening who are specialists in the music of the dance, in the music of history, and the music of Balanchine. And I'd like to invite to join me up here now music director, San Francisco Ballet, Martin West, and musicologist, <laughs> musicologist and Stravinsky specialist, Dr. Richard Taruskin. We did test our mics, so they should be working for you. And so I will just say a quick, this is, this is our sound check. Greetings, Martin. Uh, good evening. <laughs> and greetings, Richard. Hello. We're all, on, we're all wired. Um, it's um, impossible to talk about Balanchine, as we said, without talking about music. And when I am offered the opportunity to invite musicians to be guests at these events, I look at the season and say, well, that's a no-brainer. We have a program devoted to Balanchine. Uh, it's also um, an, uh, not a coincidence, it's incidental, but on this season we have an extraordinary revival of the ballet Petrushka, which is to a score by Stravinsky that is what we would call groundbreaking and seminal and all sorts of things like that. But not Balanchine but not created by Balanchine. However, that gives us a little entree into talking a little bit more about Stravinsky, and I'm delighted, Richard, to have you with us. Uh, Richard has written books about Stravinsky and books about Petrushka, and we'll get into more of that in a minute. Um, Martin, you've been conducting the ballet. We know that's a kind of an obvious description of some of what you do. Your title is music director. How, just in our little elevator sketch of description, how widely encompassing is that job? Uh, that's a good question. Um, obviously, I do the majority of the conducting of the orchestra, and people see me do that. Um, but basically, my job is to make sure the music happens uh, in every single way. I'll give you an example of what I did today. I went home, and I got all my wine glasses out, and I filled them with a bit of water. And I squeaked around like you do at dinner parties. And I had to find, trying to find some wine glasses that uh, will work for the Little Mermaid because we need a set of crystal glasses. So that was what I did this afternoon as I went home, uh, as well as learning a bit of Petrushka. And uh, so um, I, that's <laughs> one of the things I do. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to say exactly what I do every day because it's that sort of thing. I, I book the soloists, I uh, make sure that the orchestra is running well with my personnel manager. Uh, who incidentally is retiring at the end of the season. That's going to be a huge change. I, I'm sorry. Uh, Tom Rose, my personal oh, right. manager, who has been with me for, with us for 22 years, has announced that he's, he'd like to retire at the end of the season. So uh, that's going to be a huge change for me because uh, he's my right-hand man. Okay. And between us, we make sure there's an orchestra there every night. Um, Tom um, is uh, 
has to make sure that uh, when there's a sick call, which that we have all the time, that someone replaces that person. And sometimes at a moment's notice, it's an amazing job that he does. He has it all in his head. You're asking for a telephone number, and he just gives it you. He doesn't look it up. Um, so that sort of thing, um, of course, and I uh, work with Helgi to find him new works, if I can, and uh, work with choreographers to make sure that what they're doing is feasible. Um, uh, luckily, that's been a bit easier since the New Work Festival has t- taken place, but all, things like that as well. And our company has a huge balance sheet repertoire, and so it's a safe bet that you are faced with lots of Stravinsky and lots of Tchaikovsky. Yeah, two of my favorite composers, isn't that lucky? Um, Dr. Truskin, you've said I can call you Richard. That makes me very happy. Um, your background is um, pretty um, impressive, but you have studied Russian music history, you've studied Stravinsky, you've studied ballet history, you know Balanchine's works. Um, how does one sort of begin a career that is so marvelously all-encompassing and yet brings you to us? Well, on the Balanchine front, I was just lucky. I grew up in New York, uh, and I began going to the New York City Ballet when it was still at the city center in New York, before there was a, a Lincoln Center. Uh, so I became familiar with Balanchine informally. Uh, Stravinsky became a, an, uh, an obsession with me already during my academic career uh, because Stravinsky's music was uh, so um, prestigious and so widely played and yet very little about his career was known and what little was known wasn't true because it all came from Stravinsky and you know <laughs> the only reason to write memoirs and Stravinsky wrote memoirs on an industrial scale the only reason to write memoirs is to lie And so that became my career, uh, setting the record straight about Stravinsky, which of course demanded that I learn a lot about the background to Stravinsky's music and uh, to Russian music generally. So that's how it came about. We do have some clips, and I thought they might just serve as jumping off places for you to comment and um, give us historical background and music history background. We're going to start with Serenade. the music is Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings. I, before we actually get into this, I unfortunately need to make a f- couple of disclaimers. These are, this is footage that is taken exclusively for archival purposes. It's not really performance peak, so please indulge us if the visual is a little fuzzy and the music is a little um, less than high quality. Always want to just keep watching. Um, Richard, can you? Um, we're not going to watch it again. <laughs> um, locate us in the piece. Well, that's the uh, transition. Um, well, locate us in the piece. That's already a problem because what is the piece in this case? There's the Serenade for Strings by Tchaikovsky and there's Serenade, the ballet by Balanchine. They're not identical, even though, as you say, he used the whole score. Um, The movement that you saw just beginning was the finale of the original Serenade by Tchaikovsky, Uh, but it's not the finale of the ballet. Balanchine changed the order of the movements 
And that's why I was so glad to hear you say that there are elements of plot in this ballet, even though it's touted as one of the pure ballets. And when talking about Balanchine, always it's emphasized how he brought back the pure abstract white ballet, rather than the, well, implicitly degraded ballet d'action, as the French called it, the ballet that has a plot, uh, the ballet that was a sort of competition for opera. Uh, and it's true that uh, Balanchine's dances tend towards the abstract rather than towards the plot. Very few of his ballets have elaborate scenery, elaborate costumes. A lot is left to the imagination of the, uh, of the audience. But among the things that the audience always Im imagines is a plot when watching a Balanchine ballet. Why else would he change the order of movements? He puts the uh, finale from the serenade, which is the most exuberant movement, and it's based not on a Russian folk song, but on a Russian dance type, so that it's recognizably Russian. But of course, they don't look Russian, uh, these dancers. He's not emphasizing that aspect. But there is this moment of exuberance, but the ballet ends on a rather elegiac note. Um, I, I understand that uh, during a rehearsal uh, when he was first uh, choreographing the ballet, one of the singers, uh, one of the singers, I shows them a musician, one of the dancers fell uh, and um, Balanchine decided, I'll keep that. Uh, so you'll see a dancer fall on purpose, although it wasn't originally on purpose, and then that dancer becomes uh, a kind of um, martyr figure uh, who is uh, apparently well, dead or incapacitated and then brought back to life and ends on a note of apotheosis at the end. All of this is presented in a rather a narrative way for the sake of which he violated the order of movements from Tchaikovsky's score, probably with Tchaikovsky's last symphony in mind, the Pathétique Symphony, which ends very unconventionally with a slow movement. Uh, and I remember from 1983, the um, year of Balanchine's death, there was a Tchaikovsky festival, the last big event that he choreographed for the New York City Ballet, which included, and I was so lucky to have been at that particular performance, one performance only of his choreography of the Sixth Symphony of Tchaikovsky, including that finale, that, uh, that elegiac finale, uh, in which, uh, well, I'll never forget it, uh, dancers with huge angelic wings on the stage. I never understood why, whereas Balanchine rarely used elaborate costumes, he had these big angelic wings, until I went in St. Petersburg to see Tchaikovsky's grave. And there's a monument on Tchaikovsky's grave. Tchaikovsky didn't live in St. Petersburg, but he died in St. Petersburg. And because he was a personal friend of the Tsar, Alexander III, the Tsar gave him a big funeral and paid for his burial in the very exclusive artist's cemetery in St. Petersburg. The monument on his grave shows a bust of Tchaikovsky attended by two angelic figures uh, who have these huge angelic wings, just like the dancers in this last movement of uh, the Pathétique. I'm sure Balanchine had that on, in mind, that he was going to create something parallel to the last movement of Tchaikovsky's last symphony. Um, so there is an element of plot. You can't avoid that. And so to, to oppose the idea of abstract ballet to the idea of plot ballet, I think is rather misleading. Uh, the line between them is fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And it's in exploring that fuzzy line between what is plotted and what is left to the imagination or what is nominally abstract that I think the most fascinating aspects of Balanchine's choreography come out. You could say the same thing about Tchaikovsky's music itself, though, couldn't you? I mean, he actually names that, that last movement elegy. Mm -hmm. It's clearly mm -hmm. some sort of plot in right. Tchaikovsky's right. mind, even though it's not explicit what it is. Right, and, that, uh, and the other thing I wanted to say about what you just saw is that um, Tchaikovsky very cleverly makes transitions from the other movements into the uh, exuberant Russian dance in the finale of his, uh, of his serenade. So that Tchaikovsky is pointing out another fuzzy, a fuzzy line, a line that is usually strongly contrasted when talking about Russian composers. Some Russian composers are called nationalists. 
people like Rimsky-Korsakov and people like Vussorgsky and so on. And then there are Russian composers who are classified as cosmopolitans, and that would include Tchaikovsky. Uh, but here Tchaikovsky uh, twice makes transitions into this Russian dance from music that doesn't sound Russian. In one case, from the music of the Elegy, which precedes the, um, the Russian dance and the original score. And then, as you'll hear, uh, he has a reprise of the opening movement of the serenade. Tchaikovsky has a reprise of the first theme of the opening movement towards the end of the Russian dance, uh, which is a very stately, classical-sounding theme. doesn't sound at all Russian. It goes So he plays you that theme again, uh, as if recalling something totally different from what you're watching, and then he transforms it. So this classical theme becomes a Russian dance. So Russians can be classical, classicists can be Russian, you know. <laughs> Another fuzzy line which is usually drawn so sharp. I'm really against sharp lines. I love fuzzy lines, and that's why I love Tchaikovsky and Balanchine. Martin, I want to turn sort of from the history to the present um, and to what we see on stage. Um, there, a question that always comes up is in interpreting the music, um, and I'm thinking just one facet, and that is speed. And Balanchine is more likely than not to have things go very fast. Sometimes um, when one hears an orchestral recording on the radio, the, the tempo is just not at all what I danced it. And so it, um, I find it different, um, just a different impulse. How are you in control of the tempo? Are you instructed by the dancer, by the choreographer? Uh, you've always instructed. Moment. I mean, we always get instructions, and just like the, um, the dancers get instructions from the, the ballet staff, I get instructions from them, from the dancers, and, and essentially they get instructions from me because I play it the way I play it. I'm actually not actually conducting Serenade tonight. Uh, David Lamarche from ABT is conducting it, but I have done it, and I've done plenty of Balanchine. And the, the thing I've always found about as a conductor is that Balanchine was probably, well, without question, the most musical choreographer. And, and by that I mean, it means his choreography can take the, the widest extremes of tempo that, of any choreographer I know. You'll find choreographers who, they'll choreograph it, and if it's not exactly the way they did it to the tape that they did it to, or, or, you know, or the, the pianist that happened to be playing every time for his rehearsal, then it's, it doesn't look right, it's impossible to dance, it just doesn't work. Whereas with Balanchine, that, generally doesn't happen, actually. There's usually a much wider range of tempos you can take, uh, which is, I think is testament to his genius because it does reflect the music. So he always breathed with the music. Um, he, was, he was famous for altering the steps. You know, one time he'd have the accent on one thing, on one beat, and then he'd repeat, when the music repeated, he'd change the choreography and the accent would be on, a, on the same, on a different one. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it was still possible to dance them that way around. But the music still breathed in exactly the same way as a, as a choreography, and I think that's where his genius came in, because he understood the, 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 the scope of the music, you know, the, the, the arch of how it all fitted together. Let's look at the next video clip, which is theme and variations. I wanted to stick with Tchaikovsky before we launch into Stravinsky. Um, again, this is an archival tape and won't be fabulous, but it's not bad. And we're watching Vanessa Zahorian, and I believe she's going to be with Gennady Nedgevin.
This is a wonderfully serene moment in the middle of what is a pretty packed total ballet. Um, Richard, can you locate us in this? Yes, I'm glad you picked this clip. In fact, I asked you to pick this clip. Uh, <laughs> because it shows uh, something wonderful about Tchaikovsky as well as the reason why this ballet works so well, even though uh, it's a ballet that was put to music which was nominally symphonic music. But the fact that there's this violin solo in the middle of these theme and variations um, uh, shows that it was already a kind of parody of ballet music or faux ballet music before Balanchine even got a hold of it. Uh, and this reminds me of one of the most wonderful things that Balanchine said about Tchaikovsky, which was that Tchaikovsky perfected the Russian imperial style, as he put it. Of course, Balanchine had a great nostalgia for imperial Russia. That was the country he grew up in and the country that he had to flee after it had changed into a different kind of Russia. So he cherished in Tchaikovsky this imperial, aristocratic, noble aspect. Uh, and the violin solo in the theme of variations really epitomizes the imperial style because, you know, every ballet that was created for the Mariinsky Theater in St. Petersburg had to have a violin solo. And that's because it was part of the contract with the uh, dance company and also with the man who was called the imperial soloist uh, that there would always be an appearance for the imperial soloist. You have to remember that the Russian ballet before the revolution was a court ballet. It was directly patronized by the Tsar. And the tsar, so it was the imperial ballet in the imperial theater. Uh, and uh, the best musician in the actual retinue of the Tsar was this always a world-class violinist for some reason. Uh, in Tchaikovsky's day, that world-class violinist was Leopold Auer who was Hungarian, which in those days meant Austrian, of course. Uh, Auer spent a lot of time in St. Petersburg, although he was not Russian, uh, but he became a very famous teacher. He taught Yasha Heifetz, he taught Misha Elman, he taught many, many of the Russian violinists. He actually founded what's called the Russian School, although he wasn't Russian, so it was really the Austrian School. Um, but Leopold Auer would always play in every ballet performance, so there had to be a part for him. So Tchaikovsky, writing these theme variations, decided he would sort of parody that moment in the imperial theaters when the imperial soloist would get up and play his solo turn. So he put a violin solo into the middle of this orchestral piece. Anybody listening to it in St. Petersburg in the original audience for the piece would have recognized, oh yes, that's the ballet, you know, that's the imperial soloist moment. Just like he ended the theme and variations with a big polonaise. Uh, Russian ballets almost always ended with a polonaise because the polonaise was the great court ballroom dance. Uh, and so that's another aspect of the imperial style. Uh, so that's one of the things I'm sure that attracted Balanchine to this piece. It was already ballet music just waiting for a choreographer, but expressing that high aristocratic Russian style that of course was completely lost in the 20th century. Do you have anything that you would like to add about theme and variations? I'm just aware of the time and we've got Stravinsky ahead of us. Nothing as good as that. <laughs> theme and Variations is an absolutely sensational piece and there's one little thing I can't resist saying um, that's not so musically related as dance and that is all the pieces on this evening's program um, begin with academic um, classroom ballet quotes and I look for you to, to look for those. Uh, Serenade begins with the dancers turning out to first position and Theme and Variations begins with the um, principal ballerina beginning a basic combination of her legs and feet. Um, I'm sure we could extend that to the Stravinsky. I do want to move on to the Stravinsky now. But this is the um, Stravinsky Violin Concerto. And I do, before we look at it, I just wanted to um, quote a story that I, I can remember, a story that I heard when I interviewed Bart Cook, who was a dancer with the New York City Ballet and staged a violin concerto uh, here in San Francisco in the last couple of years. He said that um, Balanchine was known to call rehearsals of this piece, whether the dancers needed it or not, because he just wanted to hear the music. Um, okay, let's. And 
This is a bit of a pastiche of the four movements. This is from the first of the two potages. from the second of the two parties. the finale. Um, before I ask you to respond, um, well, either one of you, um, there is a famous quote about Balanchine that um, through his work you could hear the dance and see the music. And I think this really illustrates that pretty well from where I sit. Um, well, sure. Tell us about this piece <laughs> of music. Who could disprove that? In fact, that's the thing uh, about Balanchine's response to the music. He certainly knew how to take the sonic events, which of course always imply movement. Uh, musicians are always talking about going fast, going slow, and in fact we use the word movement to mean you know, a part of a piece. Uh, so music is always being analogized to movement, and you really can see how Balanchine picks that out. Um, the thing about the Stravinsky Violin Concerto that I just adore uh, is um, that it is from Balanchine's late period, of course, uh, a remake of a ballet that he'd done 30 years before. Uh, but you can really see the influence of the American environment, I think, on Balanchine uh, in the steps and the movements that he adapts to this piece, which Stravinsky didn't write in America. He wrote this piece while he was still living in France before coming to America. And of course, Balanchine choreographed it before coming to America. Um, so that this, but this was the second time around. And if you see, you'll see this between two Tchaikovsky ballets. And in the Tchaikovsky ballets, the um, carriage of the dancers, as you were describing it, uh, the old Russian imperial style, very, very straight carriage, very straight torso, uh, arms always up in the air, looking very noble, very looking imperial. But there's nothing imperial about the choreography in the Stravinsky Violin Concerto. Uh, very loose limbed, kind of, you know, supple movements. Uh, I understand that there's an influence from Georgian folk dance on the choreography. I just learned that from the program last night. Uh, to me, it looks very American. But of course, Balanchine was Georgian. His actual family name was not Balanchine. It was uh, Balanchevadze. Uh, so his full name in Russian uh, was Georgi Melitonovich Balanchevadze. You can see why he changed it. Um, he, he had a brother, that's right, Jacob changed everybody's names because names like that don't sell. Uh, but he had a brother, Andrei Melitonovich Balanchevadze, but Melitonovich just means their father's name was Meliton, uh, who remained in uh, the Soviet Union and became one of the most honored composers of the Georgian Republic. Um, yes, it's true that Balanchine uh, was born in St. Petersburg, but um, did he live in Tiflis, in Tbilisi at all? Never went, yeah. So I, I, don't, I wonder about the Georgian, the Georgian heritage that is reported. Yes, well, of course. His father was also a famous composer, a musician. Not famous outside of Georgia, but in Georgia he was very big. Um, so there may be something of actual Georgian dance. In, I think uh, if you look at the last movement especially, yeah, yeah. Be beginning of the last movement, the Kibitcho is all this thumbs up thing. Right. I always thought they were playing the, the 
the balalaika or something, or the hurdy gurdy or something. But maybe this. That makes sense because the last movement of the concerto was in a very different style from the rest. Uh, this was Stravinsky's Bachian period when he was trying to write music that sounded very 18th century. Neoclassical is the word that we now give it. Uh, Stravinsky liked to just say he was going back to Bach. Uh, that sounds better in English than it did in the language he was using in those days. That was uh, French. La retour à Bach, he called it. Um, so the first three movements sound, if you know Bach, it'll sound, yeah, it does sound like Bach, but the last movement is all of a sudden the rite of spring again, especially at the end, the part that we were just seeing. Uh, that strange discontinuity in style, oh, that was typical of Stravinsky, but Balanchine did catch that in the dancing. Take us back a little bit um, in Stravinsky's career and what will amount to forward in our season to Petrushka and um, just describe for us a little bit about how Petrushka came to be. Yeah, well, uh, Petrushka is a work that was written while Stravinsky still thought of himself as a Russian composer writing for a Russian audience. Although the piece was not performed in Russia for a long time because uh, he wrote it for Sergei Diaghilev's company that never performed in Russia. It was a Russian company that performed only in Paris and other European cities, that is Western European mm -hmm. cities, and after the revolution de decided to become emigres. Uh, but before the revolution, and, and Petrushka was written in 1910, 1911, so it, it was considerably before the revolution. <laughs> It was written by a Russian composer, as a Russian composer, for a, an implied Russian audience. And so it's very much in the traditions of 19th century Russian music and ballet. Um, and, uh, but the amazing thing is that Stravinsky did not conceive of it at first as a ballet, but as a piano concerto. Uh, and so two sections of the, uh, of the score have a very prominent piano solo part. Uh, the dance at the end of the first tableau and the whole second tableau have this piano solo because it, that's the first part he composed. It was only later, after he started using some Russian street tunes uh, in, the, um, in the dance from the first tableau that Diaghilev, who heard him play, it, said that would make a fantastic ballet. Uh, and so it became a ballet, and it became probably the best ballet that Diaghilev ever put on. And one of the ballets that is treated uh, as, you know, such a masterpiece with such reverence that uh, no other choreographer has touched it, really. It's still done with the original choreography, not by Balanchine, but by his predecessor as a choreographer for Diaghilev, Mikhail Fokin. Uh, that choreography is kept, the original sets and costumes, by a great Russian artist named Alexander Benoit, obviously a person with a French ancestry, but a Russian. Uh, that's all kept just the way it was, pristine. Uh, Balanchine never did Petrushka, did he? I know it was done in St. Petersburg mm -hmm. in his youth. Yeah, no, but I mean, he never choreographed. Oh, no, I don't believe so, not at all. That no. was a sacrosanct masterpiece. The only ballet of, of the early period of Stravinsky that Balanchine ever did was The Firebird, because Stravinsky never liked the original, and uh, it's never been revived the way it was done in Paris in 1910. And actually, Stravinsky decided he didn't like the complete score and made a selection, a suite from Firebird that Balanchine choreographed as a favor to Stravinsky, actually, so that there would be an alternative choreography to the complete ballet, which Stravinsky had sort of turned cold towards. So Balanchine and Stravinsky did each other a lot of favors. And the biggest favor that Balanchine did Stravinsky was that he did ballets to the late music of Stravinsky, which is the hard music for audiences. And so they're very, very rarely performed by orchestras or by um, musicians generally. Uh, but because Bal Balanchine did choreographies to them, they're very often performed as ballets. So musicians who want to hear like Stravinsky's movements for piano and orchestra, they go to the ballet and they cover their eyes sometimes because they want to <laughs> they want to concentrate on the music. But thanks to Balanchine, Stravinsky's late music does get performed, and sometimes people who hear them as ballets actually get to like them. Uh, and it might be, even be possible to do them in orchestra concerts now. Most of them, I think, are in our repertoire. I know we have done, I don't remember well, there's how There's quite a lot we don't, I mean, there's, there's a pro Jesualdo thing, I don't think we've done that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's all sorts of the variations for orchestra, did he do that at the end? Yeah, the variations are a good case in point. They're never done by orchestras, but they are done as ballets. Mm -hmm. That piece is done as a ballet. 
I've, I've only been here five years, so I'm not sure how many we've done. I mean, the, I, actually, I, I was on the balancing website just a few days ago, and I, when I put in Stravinsky and the catalogue, and it came up with 40 works. Okay, so... So I don't know if that's... I'm assuming I don't know how many of them are doubles. I didn't look too carefully, but that's a, an awful mm -hmm. <laughs> lot, a lot. lot of work, you know. And that collaboration I mentioned, maybe it was they worked together on 26. Well, he, he, he commissioned quite a few, didn't he? Agon was one that he... Agon was the last time they actually collaborated. And Orpheus, um, was that one? And before that, there was Orpheus. Uh, before that, there was Apollo. But most of um, Balanchine's... Oh, and there was the Circus Polka. Uh, the oh, tell us about the, the Circus Polka. The, the Elephant Ballet that was uh, commissioned by the Ringling Brothers Barnum Ballet Circus. That commission actually went to Stravinsky not to Balanchine, because that was 1942. Balanchine was not yet famous and revered the way he later became, but that was one of the favors Stravinsky did to Balanchine, if you can call a commission to choreograph a ballet for elephants a favor. Uh, but it was money at a time when commissions were very few and far between. It was wartime in America. Uh, so um, Stravinsky was given this commission by the circus because his name, as they thought, would sell tickets. They would get, you know, intellectuals to come to the circus if they put on a ballet by Stravinsky for elephants, even if it was... Oh, not just elephants, also for Viera Zorina, a, a ballerina who was sat on top of the lead elephant uh, as another kind of attraction, I suppose. Uh, so that was another one of their actual collaborations. Um, I but have many of them. Many of them were um, ballets that uh, that Balanchine choreographed to work that Stravinsky did not intend as ballets, and Stravinsky very often objected when that was done, but never when Balanchine did it. I was just going to comment about the elephants um, dancing. Stravinsky, as you mentioned, is oftentimes we don't sit in the concert hall and listen to it. It seems to work when it's brought to life by the dancer, um, and some of that. I'm sure, has to do with dissonant sounds and unusual rhythms. And an anecdote about the elephant ballet is that they had to retire it after one season because the elephants, it was making the elephants neurotic. <laughs> because they were used to John Philip Sousa. Well, the question is, who made them neurotic, Stravinsky or Balanchine? Well, <laughs> it's the story in the book. Um, we have a very, very few minutes, and I know that you both could say tons and tons more, but perhaps a couple of questions from our audience will elicit some more comments. Would someone like to jump in with a question? Yes, ma'am. rephrase the question. She's asking about the piano transcription of an orchestral store, score. Obviously um, in the studio you can't have the whole orchestra and certainly in the old days they didn't have good recordings. Um, how is that, how um, is that done? It's basically a way of just uh, uh, distilling what's in the orchestral score. Um, Every, every score, I mean, if it's e to, in its simplicity, every score has a, a, a melody and it has a bass line and a harmony. And uh, so that uh, when you transcribe a piece for piano, uh, you, you would start off with a melody and the bass line and then you would add whatever you can in the middle to, to be possible to be played to, to fit in as many harmonies and rhythms and inner voices as you can. So, and then to, yeah. being judicial about which ones you leave out. And the question was about the fact that Balanchine could do right. his own. It's remarkable that he could. Um, he was, as you said, trained as a musician uh, as well as a dancer. Um, he didn't do it because he wanted to do it, though. He did it when he had to do it. Um, because, as you said, uh, in rehearsal, you can't have the orchestra. Um, you could use a recording, of course, but with the new ballet, there is no recording. Uh, so Stravinsky used to always make piano reductions for use in rehearsals, but when Stravinsky did it, he did it so artfully that sometimes his piano reductions are used in concert. Just recently, I read a review just the other day in the New York Times, a concert in New York, Richard Good and Jonathan Biss, two terrific pianists, did a concert of two piano music, and one of the two piano works they played was Stravinsky's rehearsal reduction of Egon. 
which was the last one that he did of that sort. Um, but Stravinsky always did his own. Um, Balanchine uh, did it whenever there was a piece that there was no recording of that uh, they needed for rehearsal purposes. Uh, Robert Kraft, who was a companion of Stravinsky's, who wrote a diary of his daily doings, uh, was very impressed once that um, Balanchine decided he would do a dance to the music of the symphony Opus 21 by Anton Webern, uh, who was a very esoteric 12-tone composer. Um, but Balanchine was able to make a pretty good reduction of that score. Uh, that's another piece that Balanchine tried to popularize by making a dance version of it. Uh, hasn't lasted in repertory, has it? Not really. No. That's the uh, unfinished... Um, I can't think of it right now. Let's see if somebody else has a question. I saw one over here. Yes, ma'am? No idea. Uh, yeah, I, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting uh, thing. I've never. I don't know that. Um. I've never heard that particular anecdote. But there are so many dancers who have danced serenade, and so many stories. So many times that one would be in rehearsal with Mr. B. And I mean, it could well be too. It's 1934, story. so it's exactly the right time. And 1934. Hitler had just become the chancellor. I don't think he was quite the figure mm -hmm. he later became mm -hmm. in 1934. But again, that's possible. It's the kind of story that I've been spending my whole career uh, investigating with and for those when of you Stravinsky who didn't, told them. I've yeah. never heard this one, yeah. though, but I'll look into it. That was, that was so mysterious. I will, I'm sorry, I didn't repeat it. Um, she was talking about the opening gesture, which is this, and um, that someone had... Had said, she had read that um, it was an inversion of the Heil Hitler, and um, that's fascinating. Um, we perhaps have time for one more question. Everyone looks a little bit. Um, she's commenting, the, the photo that we have of Balanchine holding t uh, tools in his hands, um, his hobbies were woodworking and cooking, and he considered that craftsmanship, and he considered his dance-making craftsmanship. I wish we had much longer. I would like to say a very profound thank you to Dr. Richard Taruskin <laughs> and to Martin West. I want to invite you to return, I believe we're in two weeks, here, and the subject will be the Ballet Petrushka on that program, and my guest will be Isabel Fokin, who is the granddaughter of Mikhail Fokin, the choreographer. It was she who staged the work for San Francisco Ballet. It is she who holds the ballet step by step in her memory and muscles, and I know it will be an absolutely fascinating hour. So I hope to see you then. Thank you so much. Thank you.